The Car Dealer Podcast is sponsored by SalesLink from Jato, a market insight tool that's purpose-built for franchise car dealers. Get analysis on thousands of new vehicle transactions every month from all the major brands. See model mix and trim data for the brands you sell, as well as competitor data, all in the free web-based platform. It lets you track vehicle option uptake, colour preferences, and gives detailed data on pricing and discounts. Sign up for your free SalesLink account today. Visit jato.com slash saleslink to start unlocking your market insights. Welcome back to the Car Dealer Podcast, where we pick our favorite stories of the week and ask an industry guest to choose which were the best. I'm John Ray, and I must apologize in advance because James Baggis is with me and he's got a new electric car. So I sort of already know which way this is going to go. James, how are you? I'm fine, John. I'm fine, thanks. I have got a bit of an electric car rant, uh, but just firstly, just want to make sure that this uh, podcast is being recorded and it's not going to be lost. Um, or is it a bit too soon to talk about that? Oh, too soon. Too soon. <laughs> too soon. <laughs> too soon. John and I had a, uh, had a, had a very interesting call this week. Uh, I'd recorded a couple of uh, car dealer inspiring leaders podcast very very good ones actually um and I well you say to... that we'll never know we'll never know will we john no because we we had a conversation where you had to say unfortunately my computer has eaten them so you're yeah. gonna have to do them all over again so hopefully uh, i've already spoken to sean kelly and he was fine about it uh but i haven't spoken to darren ardron yet uh but i'm hopeful hoping he's gonna be the same but john we won't mention that will we no no never. darren if never you're again. listening my apologies. never again but no, I have got an electric car rant. Um, it was not so much a rant, um, but I had a, a new long-term, this proper first world problems. Uh, my Audi, <laughs> I'm losing, losing all sympathy with all listeners. My Audi RS6 was swapped for an Audi SQ8 e-tron, uh, which is the new uh, larger SUV electric car. Um, on Friday, I had my ill-fated, uh, much-talked-about uh, charge point installed. Uh, Monday morning was the first time I had to use that setup um, for the first time and actually plug my car into the wall. I mean, the, the, the way I explain it is if I plug my laptop into the wall, it starts charging, doesn't it? But well, when I plug, plug my app, yeah, yeah I mean, pretty, pretty simple concept, you know, electric going into a battery. But when I plug my Audi into my pod point charge point, it didn't do that. Um, the Audi said it didn't like the charge it was getting, uh, and the pod point couldn't explain why it wasn't charging the Audi. And obviously, they were blaming each other. So, cue many phone calls uh, with pod point, um, who had to log in remotely to my pod point and reset it. What on earth that did, I have no idea, but it did work after that. But my point on this is, I mean, I'm not a Luddite, um, but if my mum had been in that situation, she would have gone absolutely crazy. She would have had no clue whatsoever to do. Um, this electric car has turned up. It is. Can you do you want to have a guess at how much this car is? Considering the Audi RS6 was one hundred and ten thousand pounds, and currently I, I checked the trade value. You could you could give seventy five for it and buy that car. How much do you think this SQ8 e-tron is? Okay, so I, the, the Q8 bit is a bit misleading, isn't it? Because <clears throat> it's not the size of a Q8; it's the size no. of. It's like an A6, isn't it? So I'm going to say about 70, 80 grand. It's £120,000, John. £120,000. No one's going to buy that car. Like, absolutely no one is going to buy that car. Now, the well, other Certainly not after this podcast, they're not. No, so, well, I mean, okay, I don't want to write this car off before I've done my test because there are some things I like about it. Have the you other driven thing, it the, I have driven it, yeah, and I've oh. driven it quite I've driven it quite a lot this week. The other thing about new 2024 cars that I didn't realise until I got in this one is they have to, by law, have a built-in speed limit warning system that beeps one mile an hour over the speed limit. So you do 31 miles an hour in your car and it starts bonging at you. And just like lane assist, you have to turn it off every single time you get in that car. I mean, I I, I was absolutely baffled by this. Um, so much so that I had to do a lot of research on how to turn it off. I did a, I found it eventually in the bowels of the MMI system. 
Uh, it's not an easy thing to do. It took me an hour, and I'm not joking, an hour to find it because, it, and I even had to read the handbook. Um, in the end, God I made a YouTube bid. video. Sorry, God forbid. I know uh, a handbook. In the end, I made a YouTube video about it because I thought if I can't find one, there'll be some other people out there searching for it. And lo and behold, there were people out there searching for it. And one very helpful chap put a comment on there and explained how you can do it. In the Audi system, you can use a shortcut to um, get to this bit where you turn off this warning system. But that's on the Audi. What my question is, will you be able to do that on every car? Oh, yeah, I, mean, I just Audis have that little mysterious button that I never use on the steering wheel, like an asterisk, don't they? And I've never, ever set it up to do anything. But oh, I need mean, a use for it. I mean, I, I was absolutely shocked that, that happened because the thing is you turn off a 30-mile-an-hour road onto a 40-mile-an-hour road, and if there's no speed signs, which in gospel there's many of, mm. places like that, it bongs constantly at you. And it I is think this is, this is the new lane keep assist, isn't it, like of... 2024 like yeah. when i was car shopping with my mother who doesn't want to go into the likes of an mmi system and turn things off one of the prerequisites was is there a big button that turns off lane key yeah. assist if it starts driving her insane and well, in the Honda jazz that i suggested there was not so that was ruled out immediately i mentioned this john to uh jack who does our road test um and he said he was on a on the ferrari i think it's the purisang launch and they said we are told by Europe, that we must have all of these systems on our cars. But on our car, one button on the steering wheel, all off. And that's exactly what you want, isn't it? That is exactly what you want. But right, so just before we introduce our guests, I just want to do just, I've done some research for this week's podcast, John. And uh, using our WhatsApp groups, uh, of which we've got 10 of, but I use two of them, one of them which has got a 1,000 people in, uh, and the other one is very much predominantly dealers, the first group that I set up. I asked them, would they buy an electric car right now with their own money? For their stock, you mean? No, for their... That was the question. Would you buy an electric car right now with As your own money? a personal car. So, right. I mean, I, I think that sort of alludes to the fact it's a personal car. Mm -hmm. 301 votes we've had. Um, 234 people said no. 77% said no. 67 said yes. 23%. Which what I you really should have asked, James, is would you buy an electric car with your business's money? Well, and I think that I and I actually think that would be a very, very different response. But what the, the thing that I thought was interesting about that 23% is very close to the ZEV mandate, isn't it? For this year, the 22% target they need to hear. So maybe there is some good news there, but <laughs> some, some actual slim, slim actual, good news. Some actual research for you, John. But that's my rant over. Um, shall we introduce our guest? Um, yes, and ask his opinion. Yes. So our guest this week is Steve Corwood from Motor Connect. Steve, welcome. Hi, how are you? Very well, very well. I can see James already wants to indict yeah. you into the electric car uh, argument. So well, I'm no, I'm just, I mean, Steve, lovely to see you. Thank you for joining you us. Too. You have been on the podcast before, so thank you very much for coming back. Sorry you've had to listen to my rant. Um, but without wanting to sway the witness, what's your thoughts on this? <laughs> um... There's a lot of work to be done in the EV sector, That that's for sure. I mean, I had this conversation last week, funnily enough, with somebody I've been doing some work with. And we've we, we, we've just skipped hybrid. Like, you know, why was hybrid not a valid stepping stone to move to EV? Like, why did they not push hybrid models more instead of just this, you know, straight move to pure electric and the cost implication i think what john said there i think like you know from a business point of view the the, the question that you asked earlier the answer is going to be very different to a personal point of view you know from a personal point of view i'm absolutely with everybody else i wouldn't go out and spend my money 120 grand for instance on a, a, a you know a q8 electric q8 uh, but from a business point of view, it makes more sense for a lot of people to be using an EV. Yeah. The thing that I think about, well, I mean, so this car, it's very, very early days, and I'm sure I'll talk about it again in, in the future. No, inevitably. Um, I, I'm sure. Sorry, John. <laughs> but the thing that made me think, £120,000, at the same time, I'm looking on, on the likes of CarWow, Motorway, other auction platforms. You can buy a Tesla Model 3, not a very old one, for twenty grand. So I know. The, the thing is, James, I think it's all interrupt. I think Audi's pricing is optimistic for that vehicle. 
I think. You know, oh. like that's not really a... I mean, you can have an Audi, you can have a proper e-tron GT for about that money, which is the saloon one that's based on a Taycan. It's not just Audi, though, is it? Yeah. That, with that kind of pricing, that's the problem. And, and you know, it's funny you said that, James, because I actually couple of weeks ago was um at a shopping center and tesla were, were there they are the lot sort of stand that's it's always there and a model y brand new model y and this is over in europe european price forty six thousand euros what's that equate to about 40 about grand is it? 40 41 grand brand new model y and then you, you little wonder you see so many of them all over the place. Mm. Isn't it? I mean, Steve, I'm, I've led you very quickly down the EV route, but I mean, perhaps just for those people listening, we could just talk a little bit about you and your businesses, businesses, yep. plural, um, and just tell people about what you do. Yeah. So historically, obviously, car dealer, um, got Motor Connect over in the UK. Also got a little setup over in, in Mallorca, which is rentals and a bit of sales. It's more than anything keeping dad busy because he sort of came over, retired, didn't didn't want to do anything, then started getting itchy feet. And was said, he from the motor trade as well then? He was, yeah. He was a trader. So he did trade to trade. It's mainly top end uh, stuff that he did, Porsche, Ferrari, stuff like that. Um, and yeah, there's only so much golf <laughs> that you can play, it turns out, before you start to lose your marbles. So um, that's keeping him busy. I don't really get involved in it, if I'm being honest. I do from a back-end point of view and, a, you know, systems and processes and marketing. And, you know, it's just a very small, small animal that's just uh, there to keep him busy. And then alongside that, over recent times, which is new to most people, but I've been asked to do a lot more consultancy work um, in particularly in automotive, um, which at first I was very dubious about doing, um, but I've grown to absolutely love it and enjoy it. So, yeah, that's... So I'll, I'll come on to that in a moment in a little bit more detail. But, I mean, firstly, just tell, tell those people listening a little bit about Motor Connect and, and how that business is doing at the moment and what you're seeing yeah. in the motor trade. Yeah, for, I mean, there's still stock issues. You know, the, there's in terms of buying stock at the right price to hold the right margin has been a difficult task for a long period of time for nice, decent stock. Um, you know, for us, we we sort of backtracked our strategy and went to lower volumes and went direct to consumer a lot more with our purchasing, um, our way to purchase which gave us a greater margin. You know, we sort of, we jumped that net profit per unit by 20, 30% per, per unit, which wow. is, it was a big number. So that enabled us to sort of squeeze internally as well. So we're, we're running lean and mean as I, as I would say, um, but we're working on better margins, better quality vehicles. We're in control of the purchasing process to do that at huge volumes, to do it at the volumes that we were doing at before would be difficult. And I think that that's where there's a, you know, when you're talking to people in the industry across different size of dealerships, if you're a smaller dealership at the moment, you've got more opportunity to refine your processes, your systems, your personal messages to your customers and squeeze every little bit out of it that you can. I think, from what I'm getting back from the bigger boys, you know, anything going 150 to 1500 car sites is trying to buy that volume mm. and retaining margin. And, you know, the, the cost implication, not just on buying, but parts, labor and everything else, that's also changed transportation costs. Um, you know, trying to keep that tight when you're having to buy in huge volumes is not easy. The funny you should mention about the carbine um, side of things. I mean, I've been, I was thinking about this this morning when I was having a ride pre-work. Um, and I was just sort of thinking about what the opportunity would be for me locally to set up a kind of what will buy your car style um, 
James Maggot wants your motor. Well, do you know what? Funny enough, you say that is you sell your car to James was what I was thinking about. And actually, I think I'm pretty sure there's the sell your car to Jack in Birmingham or something. That, that yeah, there's a, Jamie, there's a similar one near me, actually. Yeah, Jamie was telling us about. Uh, sell Jamie your car Cable. to Adam or Adam wants your car or something. Yeah, and I was just wondering whether, you know, what the option was. You know, at the moment, acquisition for um, for our AI projects, I'm looking at the likes of CarWow and Motorway and just getting set up on some auction sites. And obviously you've got transportation, you've got the fees there, and then you've got to, you know, and then you've got to make sure you're making the margin. It does make it difficult. I mean, the, the cars that I've bought, um, a very small number from from dealers, you know, selling selling on, there's none of that. And actually, if you can buy those cars locally from the likes of CarWow and and Motorway, again, there's no transportation costs. So if you can acquire from the local local population, brilliant. So how did you go about setting that up and, and did it work? Yeah, it has worked. Um I mean, the way I've always said, and I've obviously I've helped other people sort of try and do these things as well, but you've got to just look at it in terms of the percentage of acquisition. So if you start to be able to get to a point of acquiring 20 to 30% of your stock direct from consumer, that's a huge dent in your overall acquisitional cost. Yeah. To buy a per to purchase a vehicle. Well, you're saving 700 quid a car, aren't you? Right there or thereabouts, transportation exactly. and fees included. and. Yeah, exactly. So when you look at it in that light and then, you know, how much is it costing to do, you know, to, to purchase one? Yeah, 700 quid. Well, my sort of theory with it was that we would just develop some campaigns and run them and see how we went in terms of social media in particular, leveraging community groups. And that's not just from a sales perspective, but that's also from if we're dealing with local customers we've got friends that we know locally and stuff like that where we get involved are you looking for a gardener oh and this is from the business point of view you know the comment would come from the business yes speak to ats garden services for argument's sake it shows that you're more involved in the in the local community um and then when you are looking to promote your services and sell and everything else it becomes a hell of a lot easier when you're a valid part of that community. And if you break down the cost, if you put social spend behind it and then just do your math in terms of your return on investment, you know, you're very easily half in that acquisitional cost. My, my question on this is what made people come to you or what would make people come to me over and above something like we buy any car or, or, or mostly the personal person. So with you saying like what you've just said there, sell your car to James, automatically you're insinuating that you've got a more personal brand for someone to do business with. And I think there's a lot of consumers out there that would prefer that journey than going to someone that they don't know and having to go through the whole daunting process of selling their car, getting knocked down on price and there's no real relationship and rapport built where I think is if you put the groundwork in, in terms of your social strategy in particular, community building, letting people know who they're speaking to, putting a face to the name. When it comes down to doing that transaction, it's so much easier. Interesting. I just was funny you should mention that. I was thinking about it this morning. And to, talk to us a little bit then about the um, the cons consultation stuff that you're doing and, and, and what sort of things are you helping these dealers with? It's a lot of it's around process sales and marketing. Um, I, I would argue that that is probably my my drug. You know, we're 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 car dealers, but for me, I'm not. Car is more of a commodity, as stupid as it sounds. You know, I'm not an absolute car nut. I like a nice car, but it's the process that I'm addicted to in changing it and being able to make things and tweak things better and. And, and and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of it comes down to that. I think I probably learned a lot of that from my early days when I was at Arnold Clark and running in such a big corporation and, you know, going up to management level very early. I learned me how to have to deal with process and strategy. And that's sort of what I've just carried on with. And data doesn't normally lie to me. So that's the type of thing that I've been getting involved with. How can they build a better social presence and, People get caught up in numbers and vanity matrix over return on investment. You know, th th there's all these different factors and then just normal operational stuff, getting a stock onto a forecourt and 
your stock turn as quickly as possible and following that up with really good lead nurturing and marketing campaigns from a perspective of more like nurturing the customers that you've already spent money on. You know, I think that's been one of the biggest things in the automotive industry where there's an antiquated approach. It's always about the new lead, the new customer, and then the back-end strategy. And that's costing a lot to do a deal. You know, the average acquisition cost at the minute is, is over 400 quid to do a deal. So what, what are you doing with that? You know, and the big guys, especially that are doing huge numbers, what are you doing to maintain relationships that, again, injecting some personality to make sure that them customers stay with you, especially with agency models coming in for manufacturing, you know, um, main agents, that's, that's a concern how they retain that relationship. So them type of things are the things that I suppose I never even thought about. I got approached to do some stuff and after a bit of deliberation, I started to do it. And then working with other businesses and different things is always something different. There's always a new new game to play, if that makes sense. How important is having a social media strategy to a success of a business? I mean, just setting up the Clever Car Collection that I'm doing at the moment, I've invested my time in in Instagram especially and posting the cars that I've got for sale and doing little videos and things. You kind of... You get the feeling it, it takes up time and it's one of those things you just think, well, once you've advertised the car and you've put all the time and effort into doing the pictures and the video and it's up for sale on the relevant marketing channels, then going ahead and doing pretty similar on social media. I saw, Even I think, is this worth the time? But yeah, so I'm interested in your opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is where people get really caught up in it is that, that they've already done it. So what they actually need to do is inject that part of that process that, you know, they don't have to double their workload. So people's immediate thought is, I need to double my workload. Well, you're not. When you're doing your pictures, you can be doing a video. You can be doing a personal video. You can be shooting a short video. You're shooting a walk around video. It can be broken down into different segments. You don't have to do much more work. It's just... The reality of the situation is who is somebody going to have more trust in and have more relationship with, you know, other than the person that's ticked the bare bone minimum boxes. The big, the biggest thing for me at the minute and working with larger people is sales staff have to change and become understand media in terms of content. Hmm. Like, for me now, I'm looking. If I look at anybody, I'm going. I don't want a traditional salesperson. I want somebody who can understand sales and content. I want somebody who can create that on the fly as they're doing what they're doing. So there's a there's a level of training and education that needs to yeah. go into play, and it gets overcomplicated. And you know, people are worrying about likes and and how many views I get and all these kind of things. The reality of the situation is, you're selling products. You're given a really good service. How many customers do you need to buy that car? One. Hmm. You don't need a million views on your video. No. Yeah, and, in fact, and, if you've got a million views and no leads, something's gone a bit wrong there. Exactly. And and the point being is it's not all about sales, hit myths, hacks, you know, what you should be doing at winter in winter, you know, writing, you know, newsletters should be going out and giving the 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 previous buyers or inquiries tips around how they can maintain the car over winter periods and so it, just injecting some personality um rather than just moving on to the next the next customer or just creating the bare bone minimum content that needs to go out there the people that are going to succeed are the people that are putting more effort into creating the content and connecting with their customers on a personal level over wow. anybody else I'll have to send you my latest advert and you'll have to see uh, what you think on that one because I've done a video and um, I've done it in a personal style and hopefully that's that's worked. But I'll be very interested to hear your hear your opinion on that one. But I think, John, we probably should do some stories. What do you think? Yes. Uh, so James and I are going to run through our favourite stories of the week and at the end, Steve gets to decide whose stories were the best and who is the winner. James won last week. So off you go. Thank you, John. Um, right. Lots of good stuff to pick from this week. Uh, but I'm going to start with um, a story regarding trading standards. 
warning of the dangers of buying from used car dealers posing as private sellers on Facebook. So this was a interview I did last week. Uh, we actually chatted to two trading standards officers um, who are incredibly worried that Facebook isn't actually doing enough to protect consumers by highlighting uh, car dealers who are pretending to be private sellers. So I spoke to Chris Hill. He's a senior investigations officer from National Trading Standards. And they had conducted a probe um, of more than two and a half thousand car adverts on Facebook. This was predominantly in Wales. And of those two and a half thousand adverts, they found that uh, they were posted by just uh, 432 users. One of those users had advertised 90 cars during the six month period. Um, and what uh, Chris's point was is that these these people who are clearly motor traders who are pretending to be consumers are selling these cars without their without the statutory legal rights. So they investigated this because they've had a huge number of complaints around this actually across the UK. Uh, lots of people who have had problems with these cars often the the lower end of the scale cars under two. £2,000 um, and you know those cars come with problems but the issue is once that car has got a problem that person has got nowhere to go back to they haven't got a legitimate dealership to go back to and um, and and get that car get that car and that problem fixed so um, Chris made the interesting point that when dealers used to advertise in newspapers or classified magazines they had to be clearly labeled as trade and actually those newspapers and magazines had to do their due diligence to check that that buyer that that seller was a trader or not and if it if they were coming back to the magazine or newspaper on a regular occasion advertising lots of cars they would have internal systems that would flag them but facebook don't have that um, which I think is incredibly strange. I mean, Facebook, as we know, are very good with their data, aren't mm -hmm. they? Um, it's been used many times for many means. Um, so how they can't tell whether a trader uh, has advertised 10 cars in a row uh, and flagged that as such is, uh, well, unbeknown to me, really. Um, so this was, a, this was an interesting story, warning both consumers that they should be buying from legitimate car dealers and also warning those car dealers out there who are, passing themselves off as private sellers, that they will be investigated. And actually, he explained that that dealer who had advertised 90 cars is currently being prosecuted by National Trading Standards. So I just thought it was interesting, John, off the back of the mm. fact that we've done lots of stories about Facebook and these these dodgy adverts normally ge generated uh, and, and starting in, in that location on that social media site. Facebook, I must say, did come back to us. They didn't respond on my specific questions about why they're not labeling these adverts as trade. Uh, but they said um, that they um, will do investigate these things if people flag them as dodgy. Uh, but what we've seen okay. is it doesn't sure. always happen, does it? It doesn't always happen. No, and also if you're a consumer, it doesn't necessarily look dodgy does it in term well none of it looks dodgy even the actual we you know there's two different things we have issues with facebook on this is a relatively new thing to us isn't it we've always been chasing them about things that are literally just scams and they are um, adverts ripped from the internet and at temptingly low prices and then you phone up and actually it's a or it links you to a, a fake dealership site you know that sort of thing um this isn't about that at all as you say but Facebook doesn't, I would say they're disinterested in doing anything about this, aren't they? And one of the, it's funny you mentioned the local newspaper thing, because um, when we were chatting to Chris, weren't we, he was saying back in the day, he would have to trawl through local newspaper adverts and kind of uh, match phone numbers. And he'd go, oh, that advert's got the same phone number as this advert and this advert, yeah. this advert and so on. Actually, now things are a lot easier because all he has to do or his team have to do is when they're on one of these adverts on Facebook is click into the profile and see what else this person is selling. Yes. You can easily see they've got like 90 cars. So it's in a way, it's incredibly easy to spot, but Facebook presumably are not too interested in uh, using that information, which they clearly have, to label um, things as trade. They, they like to think Facebook is this kind of self um Self-regulating. Self-regulating. Thank you, John. Self-regulating area where people can do, do advertise and flag each other. But it's not, is it? They are a publisher. They are publishing these adverts. What well, do you think, I, that's, a, that's uh, a legal matter, James. That... <laughs> I, th I, think, 
I think the biggest issue is is that um, yeah, they they should they've got the data to be able to tell who's publishing from a trade perspective. I think um, there's a lot of traders that will try and use Facebook Marketplace. They haven't got like an API from their DMS system or anything that's sending it into Marketplace as a business. Um, so they're posting it in there themselves. And I believe that if they are doing that, they should say that they are a dealer. Yeah. You know, it's different if you've got 90 adverts in there posing as a flipping um independent seller. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that that's just, you know, there should be something that triggers in, in Facebook that says, whoa, hold on a minute, just stop what this person's doing because this is not right. Um yeah, I'd, I think you're right. I think there's a self-regulation type aspect and how do they control it? For me, it's quite easy to control. They just see how many, you know, they put a limit on there. They put a rule in yeah. in there that certain person advertises a certain amount of vehicles more than this time per year and there's a, there's a stop. Yeah. Absolutely. Facebook is going to have to do something about this and the scam trade. Well, not traders, the scammers as well. Because at, at certain points, you lose trust with consumers, don't you? And I mean, we, as we said in the last podcast, we spent um, a day with Autotrader last week. And the amount of due diligence and uh, kind of checks that they do on every single dealer that signs up is completely worlds apart from yeah. whatever is going on with Facebook. Yeah. So at, at, at what some about point, the private, you know, me as a, private sorry, sellers, though? Because well, there's a lot true. of scam going on you know, in the aggregated world, you know, the traditional world that we would think about auto traders or wherever else it may be. I know auto trader are much better than everyone else. Um, but there's a lot of really, really dodgy, scammy stuff going on. Mm. Mm. And I think especially in the marketplace today where people are looking at prices of cars and thinking, how is that £5,000? That would have been like three grand. Mm. You know, consumers are still sort of getting their head around, especially the lower end market. Um, and they they are looking to buy direct from consumer to consumer, mm. but there's no there's nothing in between to protect either party. No, no, there's no you know at least eBay has a buyer protection if you do things in a certain way and so on. Yeah, well, I, mean, the... I personally, if I was you know, the temptation is sometimes to look on Facebook Marketplace for things, whether it's stuff for your house or clothes or whatever, and. You kind of double take and think, actually, I don't think I'm going to bother. Yeah. We'll be right back. The Car Dealer Podcast is sponsored by SalesLink from Jato, a market insight tool that's purpose-built for franchise car dealers. Get analysis on thousands of new vehicle transactions every month from all the major brands. See model mix and trim data for the brands you sell, as well as competitor data, all in the free web-based platform. It lets you track vehicle option uptake, color preferences, and gives detailed data on pricing and discounts. Sign up for your free SalesLink account today. Visit jato.com slash saleslink to start unlocking your market insights. Right, John, move us on. Okay, uh, right. I shall talk about more worldwide news. The Houthi Rebels. <laughs> you're listening As to the bbc radio for world of one um <laughs> yeah so this is this is news that tesla and volvo have halted their european production lines or a couple of them anyway after the red sea shipping attacks by um houthi rebels so i mean this has been in the news quite oh so you were serious it really was about the rebels it really is about the oh, rebels wow. yeah I mean, this wow. has been in, in the news, if anyone watches the news or listens to the news. It's been all over the place. Um, but it's for the for the uninitiated, what it comes down to is ships are being attacked in the Red Sea, and the Red Sea happens to be part of a very convenient shipping route for things coming from Asia to... James is screwing his face up at me, but it is a very convenient shipping route. You go through the Red Sea, and then you go up through the Suez, Suez Canal, I want to yeah, say, yeah. yes, up through there, and then you end up in the Med. And for stuff coming from Asia, uh, which is, you know, China, Japan, anywhere like that, that's the shortest route to get to Europe. So a lot of ships go through that particular route. And this is causing a bit of a nightmare, as you can imagine, because lots of ships are being attacked. Um, so 
Tesla and Volvo are the first to say, Ooh, we're having a bit of a problem here because they're just-in-time methods for production don't really work when there's an enormous um, issue with getting through that area. So one of the one of the well, there's one option is to keep sending ships through that area and hope they don't get attacked. The other one is to send ships around the bottom of Africa, effectively, which is an incredibly long route by comparison, and it costs an insane amount more money. There was a quote in this particular article that says it's the rerouting it around the bottom of Africa adds. 10 days to every shipment and approximately $1 million in fuel, which puts your RS6 into perspective, doesn't it, James? Yeah, that's what so I used on the way I to the think, Alps this year. Sorry? That's what I used on the way to the Alps this year. It's exactly the same amount. Yeah. And expensed. Um, so this is going to be a bit of a problem for more than just Tesla and Volvo, I suspect. The Tesla factory in question is one in Berlin, uh, which is a small part of Tesla's production facilities as a whole of course but I, I would imagine it will start hitting car deliveries as well i mean tesla makes most of its cars in china doesn't it i don't know how it distributes them to europe whether it puts them on a ship or puts them on a train because lots of car companies do that now um but i mean list list a car company and they'll have a factory in the far east somewhere won't they where this is going to start being a problem well and we've seen what happens when when new car supply does get impacted by stuff, mm. uh, you know, semiconductors um, and the other part shortages caused some serious issues, didn't they? But actually it had a nice flip for the used car market because it pushed used car prices up. So it'll right. be interesting to see if this does become a wider problem for more manufacturers and uh, and impact the industry. But certainly one to watch, John. Mm. Shall I go for another story? Do. Okay, thank you. Um, I was going to talk about Swan, but um, no, I might leave that until later because I've, the story I was reading while you were prattling on about that last one. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm going to talk about Lookers again. Funnily oh. enough, back in the news. What a surprise. Yet more emails to our inbox uh, saying that they are not treating their staff in the in, in the way that you would normally treat them. Uh, this time, story the same from Lookers sales team who are claiming that their working hours are now going to be changed to make up for what they say are staff shortages caused by redundancies. So, I mean, you really couldn't make this up, could you? I mean, we've had nearly 14.5% of the Lookers workforce at threat of redundancy following that group being taken private in that £504.2 million deal by the Canadian firm Global Auto Holdings. That happened the back end of last year. Very quickly after that, they said they were going to make large numbers of sales staff redundant and lots of other um, areas of that business were going to be affected. But now sales teams are telling us that they've been told by their managers that they're no longer going to get weekends off. They're going to have to now work every other Sunday with a day off in the week. So they're not going to have that time to spend with their family that they had previously. Um and they're also going to possibly open longer hours. So I looked at Land Rover's, uh, Lookers Land Rover dealership in Battersea currently opens from 9 till 6 p.m. Their sales teams are saying they're now going to, they've been told that they may, may now have to open till 9 p.m. You compare that to the Canadian dealership Elite BMW in Ottawa, which is operated by the Canadian owners. They open at 7.30 in the morning and close at 8. So a lot longer working hours over there. And it looks like they're trying to put this in place here. Now, some of the people that I spoke to are sort of alluding to the fact that this is a way of the, the business trying to push them out um, and save on redundancy costs. Um, I put all of these uh, points to lookers um, several times, actually, and gave them a number of chances to respond to uh, those claims. They did not respond. Uh, they stayed silent. There was no comment that came from lookers. So, again, make... Make of that what you will. But the thing from this, John, is at the same time, the day before, we're publishing a story by the dealer group Sherwoods, who have decided that they're now going to close on Sundays mm. um, because they know how important it is to have that that quality time for their for their staff. And every time we publish one of these stories of a dealer group closing on a Sunday, we have huge interaction on our on our social media, especially LinkedIn, where all these people absolutely love it um, because. You know, staff well-being and the quality of life is is absolutely vital and i you know to be fair i mean i know you might lose a few people who want to come in on a sunday but i actually think it's probably more important to look after your staff so 
slightly wrapped two stories into one there, but I'd be interested to hear what Steve thinks on this one, especially when it comes to yeah. looking after staff and, and that weekend working. Well, we've been shot on Sundays for two years. So, um, you know, we did it exactly for that, for staff, for, for the benefit of everybody to be able to have a life um, outside of having to worry about Sunday. Um, you know what? I think it, a lot of this comes down to the size of operation again and the people that are in that operation. And I, th I think Lookers is a different conversation altogether. There's stuff going on at Lookers that I don't think we will 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 really know um, exactly what the, the the theory behind it all is. There's obviously a lot of movement going on. There's redundancies. There's people feeling like they're getting pushed out. So there's a lot more. I feel like there's a lot more going on in the background than we'll potentially know about. You might find out, James, before anybody. But, you know, there's. I think there's a lot more going on. But across the industry, I think, you know, for us, a Sunday didn't really change. We still sort of, we take we, we can take stuff remotely. We get inquiries coming in. The natural thing that happened is, like Graham or Reese for us, would, if we get an inquiry on a Sunday, they take it. Mm. They're not in work. They take the inquiry. And, you know, on occasion, if they need to be there on a Sunday, down to a customer's demand to do a deal, they will go in. But that's what we've got back from giving that back. So, you know, they've not switched off entirely because a salesperson's sort of thoughts should be, there's a, there's a lead here, I'm having it. Mm. You know, I want to deal with it. I'll deal with it now, you know. But it's their so, choice, isn't it? That's the, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think it's about empowering the people in your business, you know, have some days off. It's not a problem, guys. But, you know, if there is a big issue where it is costing us business, then there is an issue. Just so you know, we can't afford. We've still got to run a business. But I think the fact that if you're looking after them in that way and they are trained and they have a skill level of understanding of what needs to happen, then they're going to pick them inquiries up. If they need to, they'll go meet a customer. But yeah. This varies in size of dealer. Again, you know, Sherwoods is a, a, a different operation to Lookers, and I think they're looking at it from a long-term play. They're probably putting more into their individual salespeople. Um, I, I think it's good. It's worked for us. It's been good for us. I just, I really feel for the people at Lookers at the moment. I mean, John, like we, we've said this many times on the podcast, and we were getting so many emails and messages from these people who are just saying how bad it is there at the moment. And, you know, every time we get one in, we have, we chase it up because someone needs to hold this company to account. Someone needs to ask them these questions. And if that's us, then, then so be it. But I just really, really feel for those staff because there's a lot of people who are very upset about the way they're being treated. And I hope that Lookers sort of takes note of these, the fact that people are coming to us to tell us these things um, and start looking internally and making that, making these, their staff's lives a, li a little bit easier. Anyway, John, over mm. to you. Yeah, it's not not sound like a very good bit of corporate culture there anymore. No. Um, okay, I will move us on to electric cars. Ooh, interesting. Which one's this? Because I had a couple on my list. Uh, well, inevitably, there's more than one electric car store on our website <laughs> at this point. We are aiming to keep up with regulations and uh, offer 22% <laughs> electric car uh, stories on our site from now on. Um, so this is this is news that an electric car price war is expected this year, Kel Surprise, as Chinese brands are a large slice of the UK market by 2030. So Chinese car brands obviously is a hot topic currently. We in the UK, I don't think we have a huge number of them compared to Europe. As whenever I like I, when I went to Amsterdam in January, it is January, two weeks ago when I went to Amsterdam, saw so many electric car brands um of a chinese nature that i had not seen in the uk before it had obviously been established there for quite some time lots of offshoots of geely like what's the oh i forgot i can't Link, remember Link, any of lincoln co is it I lincoln co is one yeah, of them i saw quite a few of those and yeah. i went in a zika showroom as well did you and that was a very elaborate affair and very nice cars to get in and sit inside actually i must say um anyway this is a prediction from the auto trader road to 2020 2035 report 
um, which is predicting that dealers will be kept on their toes this year. Well, that makes a change uh, due to evolving new and used electric car sectors. Um, so one of the one of the interesting stats I saw in here as well is the price gulf between electric car Chinese electric cars on sale here and how much they are in their home markets. So the BYD Dolphin, which correct me if I'm wrong, is a little hatchback thing, twenty five grand here quite reasonably priced i would say for an electric car actually 25 grand here thirteen thousand pounds in china that's mad isn't it it is the gwm aura 03 which is of course what the funky cat used to be or is now called 31 grand in the uk twelve thousand in china now if they sold them for twelve thousand, they might actually sell some yeah and okay so what what you know this doesn't have the detail of there's probably a little bit of subsidy going on in China. Obviously, when it comes over here, it has to be shipped over here at a great expense, has to be registered and um, put through a whatever, you know, certification process, blah, 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 dealers, yada, yada, yada. But there is quite a bit of markup on these um, that if the likes of BYD really wanted to shake up the market, they could eat into a little bit. And they are just one of the many, many, many Chinese players that have not yet arrived here. So think, this this is just part of the story as well, isn't it? This is yeah. Chinese car is cars are going to be a disruption, but also, as I think we talked about last week, I can't remember, this 22% figure is going to see a lot of regular manufacturers having to push EVs in ways that they have not had to previously. Um, and I think, I mean, the, the, we see quite often, don't we, there's price drops from various manufacturers I don't know, once a month, probably. I mean, we had the enormous drop from Tesla last year that kick-started the price collapse of all EVs. Then Ford knocked quite a bit of money off their Mustang Mach-E, didn't they? Okay, some of this is because production gets cheaper the more you make. Mazda, I think this month, knocked some money off the uh, MX-30. That yeah. extremely popular, um, but very competent, I should say, as a Mazda driver. Uh, small electric Hashtag car. ad. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Etc. So I think you know it's 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 not a huge surprise that there's going to be a price war because it's kind of already sort of happening, isn't it? Yeah, I, I do. You know, I've, we've said this before, and actually, this was one of my predictions, wasn't it? In that that piece that I wrote was about how the Chinese are really going to shake up the, the market this year. But I I honestly think electric cars this year are going to be an absolute car crash because they are trying to sell them at the, the, because they've got to hit a target of twenty two percent at a time. No one wants to buy them. You know, no retail buyers really, really want to buy them. And I think it's going to be a huge struggle because not only is the demand not there when it comes to the new new retail market, but at the same time, as you've pointed out in this story, huge number of Chinese brands coming in. So the fight for those small number of customers who actually do want to buy an electric vehicle is going to be huge. And it will come down to price. And I think I think the people who are going to miss out on this are those are those manufacturers, those legacy manufacturers, because the likes of BYD and GWM, then they've not only got to fight for the fight to get that customer into the showroom, but they've got to fight to get their brand recognized too. So they're going to have to do some really good deals. But, Can I make a uh, prediction on this as yeah, well on, when it please. comes to the mainstream brands? We talk about um, EVs not really hitting prominence until they've reached price parity. Well, I think what that effectively means is EVs from the likes of Audi and so on are not going to become any cheaper. I just think the petrol and equivalent cars are going to get more expensive. I think that's how they're going to have to try and encourage people into them. They're going to have to say, well, you could have this, you know, your Q8 e-tron is a good example. You know, how much is a normal Q8? Which is well, it's like 70, car. 80 grand, isn't it? But the, the yeah. thing, my point with this is I've I've just gone out of that RS6 that with a full tank of fuel at 75 pounds or 80 pounds will do. 400 miles and i've gone into a car that costs one hundred and twenty thousand pounds which with a full tank of electric will do 200 miles if i'm lucky 200 miles for a hundred and twenty thousand pound car i mean at what point when you if i was a retail buyer walking into a showroom i'd just go no way absolutely no chance am i gonna why would i want to go backwards in life Right when and and pay for the privilege, I can't see it. I think this is where you're right with the legacy brands. Like, where are they going to come into play when you've got BYD etc. coming into the marketplace with their pricing already? Yes, it's more expensive than what they're selling it in China, but that's because of transportation and everything else. We've already found that there's problems there. 
you know, what happens when BYD and everyone else start to actually build cars in Europe and ship parts? Yeah. It's going to be a lot easier. They, they, you know, that's going to drive their cost down. They're just moving parts and they've got production lines in Europe. Then what does this mean for Mercedes, Audi? You know, it was funny, this conversation, because I was in Andorra skiing a couple of weeks ago and a friend of mine who's actually in the automotive sector around Europe, um, the amount of EV brands that he was showing me and that he's, that he's working alongside, I'd never even heard of. I can't mm. even remember what they're called. And you know what? The quality is like, it's not bad stuff. You know, mm. it's, it's, and it, they all very much look the same anyway. Yeah, that is a, an inherent 2024 car problem, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Everything looks sort of the same. But yeah, I mean, if it comes down to price, if you're a consumer that needs a 24 grand EV, well, it's not going to be a Ford or a, a Citroen probably, is it? It's going to be a, a Geely or a BYD. Yeah. So, I, yeah, it'd be interesting to see a what... a 40-year-old car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be interested to see what position we're in at the end of this year and quite how close to that target that we've managed to hit and how the manufacturers and the dealers have managed to achieve it because I think there's going to be quite a battle at play over the next few months, that's for sure. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to let you know about our brilliant event we've got coming up on March the 7th. It's called Car Dealer Live 2024, and it takes place at the British Motor Museum at Gaydon. Well, we'll have a packed day of sessions to help car dealers, just like you, improve your business. Tickets are available now at cardealerlive.co.uk with a special rate for car dealers. On the day, I'll have headline interviews with franchise car dealer boss Peter Vardy and big motoring world groups Peter Wardell. To find out more and book your tickets, visit cardealalive.co.uk now. Right, back to the podcast. Right, John, shall I move us on? I've got one more story on my list because you've nicked some of mine. Um, and that is news that a single franchise car dealer has enjoyed another stellar year making a impressive profit of 1.4 million pounds from one franchise car dealership and what was that uh, franchise it was kia john burton kia they um increased their turnover in 2023 to just over uh 30 million pounds from 24 million the year before uh, i remember writing this story last year their company is brd retail limited you can see they've accounts on company's house last year they made 1.8 million pound profit from one dealership mm. uh, but this this year um unfortunately not quite uh managed the same but still i don't think they'll be sniffing at 1.4 million i mean that is an incredible result isn't it and shows you actually if you do the right things really really well you can you can have a fantastic still, result still at like a five percent profit <laughs> yeah for, you know, and especially in new cars, alongside that, that's like that's a phenomenal result, isn't it? Yeah, I mean they do very well with used cars too. This business, um, but especially with especially with new, it's a really really nice showroom, big big site. Um, but I think they, those bosses just they they know what they're doing. They're clearly doing it time over time and time and again, and making making that business work. And there'll be a lot of other people looking on, just thinking. You know that is a nice business to have. I mean, I don't think anybody would sniff at a sniff at a one point four million pound profit for a for a year's work. No, very very good, very impressive results. That. So what you need, James, is a Kia franchise. I don't think they'll let me have one, John. Oh. <laughs> no, no. Um, but you know, if you're listening, Paul Philpot, you know where I am. Indeed, <laughs> working out of your garage uh, in Gosport. <laughs> Uh, and AI may speak to him when he calls. Okay. okay. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, I'm going to wedge one more in at the end. Please do. Uh, not to do more Autotrader um, information. But a uh, story from Autotrader. Used car dealers are missing out on £30 million due to underpricing vehicles on Autotrader. I should point out this is not £30 million per dealership, which would be nice. Um, but... Autotrader reckons 47,000 at the time of writing, 47,500 cars are currently being advertised for below their average retail market price. So Autotrader being the arbiters of this information, obviously you have the little um, good, fair, cheap 
not cheap. It says something else. Low, I think, doesn't oh. it? Pricing uh, marker. Low, fair, good, great, high. I think yes. Thank you, I've James. looked at this yep. in detail, John. <laughs> yes, I thought you might have. And we had we had quite an in-depth discussion with Autotrader about it, didn't we, as to how yeah. they calculate all this stuff. But they reckon a lot of people, and we, we can see it going through Autotrader, a lot of people are advertising stuff at far below the average retail market price. And that could be because they are, that's, you know, the sort of angle that they've chosen. And, you know, we need to sell things slightly cheaper or just not updating um, prices quickly enough as prices change. Um, so, I mean, James, you probably have something to say about this because you've been... Uh... Well, uh, the, yeah, I mean, I've been obviously focused on this. And I mean, what, when I'm buying the cars, I mean, the first thing I look at is what that auto trader good prices. Um, and when I list the cars, th that is the price that I list them at. I mean, what, who am I to argue with auto trader? They've got more data than I have. But I can see how some cars with some dealers fall in and out of that. You know, if you've got one with loads of spec and it doesn't quite match auto traders um, data points, you have to explain that, but you can explain that in the advert. But the, the low side of things, and I sort of get it when when stocks overage and dealers maybe want to move it on a little bit quicker. But my point on this, and it's one that auto trader made, it is actually if by doing that, by falling down into the low price, you uh, it sometimes puts off some consumers. Mm. And, and also it means you fall outside of some search parameters. So you don't even appear alongside the other ones. I mean, all customers auto traders say are looking for is that the car they're buying is at the right price that is a good price or a great price they they want to know they're not being ripped off um and i think that's where those those flags work but mm. yeah i just i i'm surprised that there's so many on there but maybe this is we have some disconnect here don't we because whenever we write these sorts of stories or publish the video like we did with auto trader about this you have all of the dealers coming back saying well we're having to do this because this is how we're having to generate demand etc mm. so I know, it'd be Steve, interesting to see what Steve thinks on this. Yeah, what do you make of this? Are you kind I of think, chasing the price marker or are you not really? Yeah, we're always chasing the price marker. I think the biggest problem is, is that there's been, there's there's continuously been a lag from auto trader price markers, especially when you're looking in fleet disposal. Hmm. So what you what we were seeing, and I made this very clear internally, and we messed up on a few bits, even though I had the discussion. I'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> the, there's a lag. So when you see Enterprise or whoever, Lex or whoever it may be, defleeting, and their prices are moving weekly at two to three hundred pounds per vehicle. That to me is a red flag to tell me that there's a lag in what auto traders tell me that retail price is today. And that is probably going to catch up in four to five weeks time. And inevitably, that's what happens because the rest of the market hasn't actually moved in line with what's happening in, in real time because it hasn't had to. But what's happening behind the scenes is there is a lag, you know, that that lag happens because of, you know, and particularly in fleet. And the other thing is there is a lot of overage stock out there. There is a lot of overage stock um, and dealers are wanting to replenish. They just, you know, again, it's like trading on Forex or whatever. You know, at the end of the day, it's money in, money out. Mm. And they're wanting to replenish the funds, especially if they've got stock in facilities, they're coming up for maturity. You know, when you there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot more of that going on right now than what, the picture is telling everybody else, you know, there's a lot of dealers that need to move this stock. And the inevitable thing that you do is move it into the low pr price marker because it's the only marker that's getting you up in the top two or three because of the other things that the other people that are doing it in the marketplace. So, you 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 know, that's the point where you stop looking at the price marker and you start looking at price position, you know, because you want to be ahead of the other mm. two because you want yours gone first. So, it comes down to price position. If there's depends on make and model, but if there's a, there's a few others doing it and they're in low price marker and you go in below them, that's going to get you up the list. Yeah. If if you want to be the cheapest though. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I suppose the, the alternative is trying to sell the car in a different way or trying to present it in a different way that people realize why it's a good price and, and, and well, want to buy, want to buy from you because, you know, you yeah. can chase that, that lowest price if you want to get it 
shot quickly, but there is other ways, isn't there? Sure, but I think also there's a lot of um, control within this aspect of vehicle pricing at branch levels, especially in dealer groups. You know, and what's not come down the line is the level of education about how they can enhance that, how they can rewrite descriptions, how they can promote it in different areas using social media, getting their internal staff to to sing the same tune. Um, so, you know, and these guys are under a lot of pressure. If you're sales or G GM now and you're, you've got a shed load of overage stock, you just want it gone. You're going to mm -hmm. take the pill because yeah. what's coming downhill is far worse than what taking the, taking the pill today. So, you know, there's a lot of that as well. There's a lot of pressure on managers at the moment to shift this stock. And that's seen as the easiest, simplest, quickest way to do it, I think. Mm -hmm. So just to get a bit of bit of your consulting for free here. Oh, well done, John. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the whole, the whole podcast has been, really. Um, if you were, James, pricing up your new car that you've just bought from an auction, what Skoda, would you... Skoda City Go. Skoda City Go. Yeah. Where would you go to find... What would you do to find what price you should be advertising at? What's well, your methodology? I, I would definitely... First and foremost, I always go a plate either side. Then I check the... As in, um, like, if it's a 68, you'd go to a 7... Um, what's the one? Yeah, like six yeah. months. Yeah, six yeah. Months yeah. So I'd go to an 18, yeah. and then I'd go to, like, a, a 19 plate. Mm. Then I would... You know, there is other things. This colour, the service history, has it got two keys? How many owners? You know, all of these things then become part of your writing process when you're creating your advert, you know, um, because when you... when I don't know how you would think, but when I, whenever, whenever I'm looking to buy something, if I've got the relevant, most informative information where it looks like somebody's taken the care to give me that information next to somebody who's just slammed it out there, mm. I know where I'm going, whether the other one's cheaper or not, because I've got every bit of information that I need. So, you know, I think there's them factors. There is also retail ratings that you have to consider, you know, the, like how quickly can you move the stock? For me, that's always been a strong point from our point of view. You know, we were running most of the last year an average of 23 days stock turn. Wow. So, you know, but it's also speed, you know, how, how long it is to get a car on sale. And there's a lot of problems out there with that at the minute. For me, you know, we have like a, a pre- um, sale process, you know, so basically quick in and out clean nine pictures. That's, do you know, that's why I did. That's why I did the, the Nissan yesterday that I've got for sale. I, the first thing I did went and had it cleaned, went out and did loads of pictures, did the video with it. There are a couple of things that need sorting, but it's at the, it's, it's at the workshop now, body shop next week, but it's up for sale. So exactly. I, yeah. You, you would be amazed how many, and then it's a huge percentage of people that do not put that car on sale until it's been through its full pre-prep process. I, yeah, just, I, can't, I can't afford you know, to wait for that amount of People time. are losing 20 to 30 days mm. in Stockton. Mm. You know, yeah. and if, 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 you know, well, it still needs to go through the process. Yeah, but you know what? If it's live and it's for sale and you're taking an order today, you know that you can ring the workshop or the body shop and say, Priority number one is this car. Stop yeah. everything else. You I know? don't think I don't think customers will will argue with that if they come along and you say, "Oh, this is this is pre prep. We wanted to get it advertised soon, but that's about to be sorted. Um, it's going in on Monday." Or it's transparency. Yeah. You know, you're seeing it. You're seeing it as it's come. This is yeah. the process. That's going to be done. That's going to be yeah. done. And what more? You know that I think this is what people people are scared of being transparent. It's mm. like it's got a bumper scuff. It's 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 six years old or six. Yeah, I think you just, you've miles, got to you've got to explain it, haven't you? You've got to show it. Actually, I, I'm looking for paint if there's no scuff. I'm yeah, thinking, where's this car? I paint. You yeah. know, nine times out of ten, it's had paint because it's, it's there's no marks. Yeah, you know, it, it's got to have some wear and tear somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's about just relaying that to the consumer and being honest in a way that you know, is honest and sincere and, 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 you know, this is what we do. This is the process we go through and I want your business, you know, and th 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 that's it. You know, people are scared to ask for business in well, that way. Well, another excellent consultation uh, podcast. I really appreciate your time, Steve. I think much, much appreciated. Yeah, it's proven to be good value, this podcast. Uh, it is, yeah. <laughs> So, Steve, um, before I ask for your verdict, are there any stories you think we've missed this week? 
Not really. I mean, obviously, we've got the the FCA. I don't think it was this week. It was last week. I've got I've, I've, everything's a blur. It's January. Sort of, yeah. yeah, it's a blend for me at the minute. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it was last week. So I don't think it's relevant this week. But, it, you know, one that sort of stuck in my head and a lot of is with the FCA and the compensation claim. Um, and what I did notice this week whilst being in the UK, because I don't really watch the news. And the only news I read is automotive news. Most of it coming from you guys. Thank you. Um, um, was it was on Watchdog. Uh, Martin, not Watchdog, sorry, Martin Lewis show. Oh, yeah. And he was talking about the compensation around vehicle finance and that you should start now and get your claim processes going in. And, you know, is this is like the next big PPI. Yeah, I think it probably is. Um, you know, I've had conversations with, with like Nick and John at the compliance guys and stuff around it all. And then guys are on top of it but um you know there's going to be a backlog of inquiries coming in now you know that's one good thing <laughs> but got to get your house in order um mm. and make sure that if you are going to get asked any questions that your processes are tight um and it's pre 2021 as well that they're going to probably look at with because yeah. there was rules and regulations so that's one thing that's sort of still i suppose it was last week or the week before i can't remember but it's still ongoing and yeah. sort of, when i watched it when i saw it on the martin lewis i thought oh my gosh yeah. this is um, here we go again yeah yeah mm. yeah and it, it just seems relentless and then never ending for car dealers at the minute in it, you know it, i think i wrote an article on it actually just on the on my linkedin newsletter like from just because of frustration of people that I talk to, it's they just feel like everything's coming from any angle that they mm. that's possible. Well, good to finish on a positive note. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I'm going to have to ask you who chose the best stories apart from you because that one would have been excellent. <laughs> um, I think the Facebook story. Yes. Yes, that's another win for me. Thank you. Sorry, oh, John. It's fine. I think I he picked your a... story last time I was on. <laughs> he did. John, John has had quite a winning streak, so I'm glad to get another one in the bag. Thank you very much. <laughs> no problem. Well, on that very disappointing note, not really. <laughs> uh, all that's left for me to say is thank you to Steve for judging today. It's been lovely to have you on as ever. And we're very thank jealous you, that you're off in the sun and not in the UK. <laughs> a few more uh, 10 days and I'm back <laughs> we'll enjoy feel it you'll feel it um, and thank you as well to James for managing to keep his electric car rant under 10 minutes you're very welcome can't promise we'll that be, next week we'll be back next week with uh, more news from James's how to plug things in um, <laughs> episodes so make sure you're subscribed so you can be notified when that goes live and if you want to check out the stories we mentioned today you take a look in the show notes below or head to cardealermagazine.co.uk Thanks for listening and goodbye.